Well, amen and good morning. What a joy to be with you again. My name is Aaron White. I'm a pastor for teaching and training at Redeemer Bible Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and it is a joy to be here. Um, anytime I get to come and minister to you and be ministered by you, it's always a special treat because I've been friends with your elders for a long time, and many of you as congregants I've known for many years. Pastor Jacob is my best friend other than my wife. Um, he, he's not my wife, but other than my wife, he's my best friend. My wife is in the back row, uh, but I love Jacob dearly. Um, not sure who's David or Jonathan, but that kind of relationship is what we have. And so whenever he says, can you come up to Grace, if there's any chance I can leave Minnetonka and come be with you, it's always a joy. And so when he said, can you come up, I said, I'd love to come up. And he says, we're in the Psalms this summer. So I love preaching from the Psalms. So where, where are we at, brother? I can't wait. It's always such a joy to be with you, to be in the Word with you. He says, well, we're just kind of working our way from the very beginning, so you're going to be in Psalm 5. And I said, oh, Psalm 5. I haven't, I haven't preached Psalm 5 before. I can't wait. And I looked at it. And then I texted him. And I said, you know that's an imprecatory psalm. Imprecations meaning praying down curses and damnation on your enemies. And Jacob and his... Typical sanctified sarcasm had a wholly unhelpful response. And he says, I'll see you Sunday. <laughs> I said, okay, all right. But nevertheless, as we prayed before the service, we believe not only in the authority of the Word of God, believe we believe in the sufficiency of the Word of God. And so Psalm 5 is no less relevant for us than Matthew 13 or any other text. So let's pray, and the title of my message for this morning is Learning to Lament, Learning to Lament. The Psalms, especially the Psalms of Imprecation, teach us how to lament being harmed, being sinned against in a fallen world. They teach us how to pray, yes, against those, but also for those who sin against us. And ultimately, Psalms of Imprecation humble us. And lead us back to the grace of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, indeed, it is a joy to look out over Grace Bible Church. We at Redeemer, I, as Jacob's friend, give you all the glory and praise and boast in you, God, for this precious, precious congregation. Pray your richest blessing over them, Lord. I pray zealously that Psalm 5 would be a unique blessing to them. I don't know every circumstance, but I do know that as my brothers and sisters live in a fallen world, they sin against others and they are sinned against by others. So Lord, I pray you would come and do exceedingly above anything we could think or ask from a psalm that perhaps many of us haven't studied in a while. And yet... It is packed with grace. And that's exactly what we need, and that is what our offenders need. So would you come and help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Learning to lament in Psalm 5. There's an aspect of Christian doctrine that is woefully neglected today. And even the, the name, the term of this thing, this area of study, sounds odd as it falls on our ears, and that is the area of theodicy. And when you hear odyssey, if you're of my generation, you think of the radio program, 
I'm not talking about adventures in Odyssey. It's theodicy. Theos, uh, God, and then the rest of the word from the Greek dik, meaning to justify. And so when we talk about theodicy, it is essentially a Christian response of thinking about the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. And maybe you haven't heard of a theodicy before, how to justify God, essentially, in the light of suffering, but maybe you've had conversations in your minds, maybe with a neighbor, maybe with a coworker, maybe with a classmate, someone on campus that goes something like this. You say that God is good and God is all-powerful. And you say, yeah. And they say, but look at all the evil in the world. So they're putting it into a logical syllogism. They're saying, you say God is good and all-powerful, evil exists, therefore God does not exist. Because if he was all-powerful and he was all-good, then there wouldn't be any evil. But my mom died, my marriage failed, my kid died, what's going on? That is one of the common apologetic tasks that Christians are faced with. So it's one thing to give a theodicy, a reason or a justification for the goodness of God in the light of suffering, and there are many. We can say, well, friends, I understand what you're saying, and there's a lot of responses I could give to that. St. Augustine, and I pronounce his name almost on purpose at this point, because everyone at my church says it's St. Augustine, but if you grew up in Florida, it's St. Augustine, because there's a city named St. Augustine, and no one says we're going to go to the beach at St. Augustine. So St. Augustine, he had a theodicy that he called the free will theodicy. All that really means is that St. Augustine said, God has made man corruptible. We sin. We use our moral agency to sin against other people. And so a lot of the evil in the world is not God's fault. It is moral agents. There's also the natural law theodicy. You walked outside this morning and you didn't float up in the sky. I hope. If you did, come and talk to me after the service. We'll pray. That is because we live in a universe that God has made predictable. There are natural laws. That's what makes the scientific enterprise possible. Gravity works the same way every day. And that is a good thing. But because God has made a universe that way, cars fall off cliffs, people fall off cliffs, planes fall out of the sky. So some of the evil in this world is a byproduct of the natural laws that God has put in place. And there are many, many theodicies that we can give. Sometimes at the end of the day, you could say, there's a lot of reasons I can try to give for why things are the way they are, but at the end of the day, I don't have all the answers. So it's one thing to give a theodicy, a justification for God's goodness in the face of evil, to someone who is asking you for a reason for the hope you have. But how do you counsel yourself as a believer when the effects of evil fall upon you? How do you give your own heart a theodicy, a justification for God's goodness? How do you pray when evil befalls you? When you're slandered, when you're persecuted, when disease comes? What happens when Christians suffer? Here's my main point that I'm going to argue from from Psalm 5. When God's enemies threaten God's people, 
God's people trust God's character. When God's enemies threaten God's people, God's people trust God's character. The first thing I see in this text is David is crying out to the Lord. The first attribute of God that we must nail our minds and our thinking to is his sovereignty. His sovereignty. Look at verse 1. David says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you, and I watch. A few things strike me as I look at these first few verses here. Lord, King, God. We often throw around the term Lord very lightly. Well, the good Lord said such and such, or the Lord did this, but do we understand the word Lord means supreme authority? The Lord Jesus Christ. That is a claim to exclusivity, to omnipotence, to power. So when David says, I'm praying to you first thing in the morning, he is praying to the Lord, my King, and my God. And also notice this, David was the king. And yet even David knew the limitations of his earthly power. David had a lot of earthly power, and yet he says, there are things that are out of my control. I am not a pauper. I am an earthly king, but there are many, many things that are outside of my purview. When suffering and fear assail us, low views of God will cause our courage to evaporate like a mist. However, a high and lofty view of God the Lord will steady our feet and help us stand. Also notice something as well. David, as the king says, I am coming to you first thing. I come to you in the morning. I get up out of bed and I cry out to the Lord, my God, and my king. Two things are happening together that I think are worth noting. David is saying, God, you are sovereign. I'm not really the king. You're sovereign over my life. You're sovereign over every detail. You are the Lord with every force that that title brings. And yet he prayed. (laughs) Well, if God is sovereign over every detail, if he determines every molecule, then why bother praying? David didn't wrestle with that. It is because God is sovereign that David prayed. David knew in some fashion that my prayers, my pleading, and what does it say? My groaning is folded in to God's sovereignty. So I'm going to get up and like a child, I'm going to recognize two things that work concurrently. You are sovereign over every detail. This thing that has come to me was not outside of your purview, and yet you beckon me to pray and ask and plead. And so I'm not going to get caught up in the theological slew. It is because I know you're in control that I pray. 
And notice also, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my what? Because I have such a high and lofty view of God and I know that you're sovereign, my prayers always sound like they're from the Valley of Vision and they're puritanical. My prayers are always eloquent and I know exactly what to pray theologically when fear assails me and sin buffets me. No, no, no. He says, this is the king. And he says, God, consider my what? Groaning. Beloved, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for us. I think that's our groaning, the Spirit working in us. Because the context of Romans 8 is if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. I think Romans 8 is saying, when you are pressed, child of God, that Abba Father is the, oh God, help! that comes out. I think it's exactly what David is saying. He says, oh God, I come to you. I could go to my army generals. I could go to a million other places. I could go to chariots and horses and weapons of war. But oh God, first thing in the morning, I come to you and I offer you not an eloquent prayer, but I offer you the recognition of your sovereignty and I groan and I say, help. That's a good way to pray, beloved. When you're assaulted, when you're lamenting, when you're persecuted. Just talked to a brother a few days ago. Lost his job because he made a very clear declaration of biblical sexuality on Facebook and his employer would have none of it. Maybe you're sexually assaulted. Maybe you're abused. Maybe life in a fallen world between disease and persecution and fear and depression and anxiety and everything else is just a tidal wave. And you can't believe you're even sitting here this morning. What do you need? Maybe you're wondering, why in the world when you plant a church, why would you start preaching in Ephesians? For crying out loud, Jacob, start in, start in John like every other good church planter. Everybody knows you start in John. Or, or better yet, just give us topical sermons. You know, we're a church plant. Give us topical sermons on relationships and finances and things. Come on, Jacob, what are you doing? Jacob is doing the most loving and wise thing a pastor can do because he knows that you are suffering, because he knows that sin buffets you, because he knows that you're going out into a world that is losing its mind, because he knows that. He's going to Ephesians 1, and he's saying, God works all things things according to the counsel of his will, beloved, you need to know that he is sovereign. You need to feel when you say with David, my Lord, my God, and my King, you need to know the theology in those words so that you're not toppled by every wind of doctrine. You'll get there in Ephesians 4. Jacob is doing the most loving thing he knows how to do for his flock He's teaching you how to lament, and the first thing is to recognize God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Low views of God offer no peace when sin bites you. And the second thing I see, when God's enemies threaten God's people, God's people trust God's character. They trust his sovereignty. Secondly, they trust his holiness. They trust his holiness. Verse 4. 
So now he grounds what he's saying. He says, I'm praying to you first thing for or because you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. This is a declaration of God's holiness. David says, I'm praying to you because I know you're not like the Greek gods. You studied the Greek gods? What a, what a miserable lot that is. You never know what they're doing up there. Are they arguing? Is there some scandal that the gods, what are they up to? Paul comes into Athens and Mars Hill and he says, I see you're very religious. You got altars everywhere because you know that if you want to get something from these gods, you better pay up, whether it's Mars or Venus or whoever, Zeus. It's a very quid pro quo relationship because they're not holy. Those gods get offended. Those local deities get offended. They're not holy. They don't always do what's right. But David doesn't say that. He says, Yahweh is unchangeably perfect and holy. Therefore, his justice is holy. It is not capricious. We read in verses 4, 5, and 6, we are not reading a description of a holy temper tantrum. We're reading the right, calculated, justified, holy response of someone who is ontologically holy. They are in their being holy. How does holiness react to sin? Not as a temper tantrum, but like this. David says, I come to you, and that's a good thing because our anger is not holy, beloved. I don't know if you know that about yourself. You say, I'm lamenting because of fill in the blank, disease, wayward child, lost job, persecution. I was sinned against. I was sinned against when I was 12, and I can't get it out of my head, and I can't let it go. But i got to give it to him because my anger is not righteous. But praise God, my father's is. He's this God. When it comes to being sinned against, when it comes to concentration camps, I need to know that he is loving, but I need to know that you're holy. I need to know that this won't go on. That's exactly what David tells us. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You destroy those who speak lies. God hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And that is a perfect hatred. When we are lamenting the effects of sin... One of the most sanity-preserving things to do is to study the holiness of God. You will make this right. 
There is not some cosmic rug in another dimension where he just puts the sins of Hitler, where he just puts the sins of Al-Qaeda, where he puts the sins of those who assaulted you when you were a kid or those who are assaulting you now. No, God is holy. And those things that bite us, he will make them right either on the cross of his son or in the fires of hell. But everyone stands naked and exposed before the one with whom we must deal. Is that not how the Apostle Paul encourages us in Romans chapter 12? He says what? Beloved, Christian, don't avenge yourself. But he didn't put a period there. He didn't say, we're called to be pacifists. You just take it. Because God is love. We hear that all the time. God is love, so you just take it. No, he says, beloved, don't avenge yourself. You don't have to go down the depressing, joy-shriveling road of bitterness. You don't have to do that. What does he say? Leave it to the wrath of a holy God. Do you see the apostolic reasoning? How would Paul counsel you if you came in and said, Pastor Paul, I'm lamenting. Why are you lamenting? Because I was hurt, or I'm being hurt by someone. I was hurt as a kid. I was hurt in college. I, there's, a, there's a million reasons I could tell you I'm lamenting. I'm just really sad about the effects of sin. And I think the Apostle Paul would say what he said in Romans 12, Beloved, don't avenge yourself. Don't get bitter. Don't gnash your teeth. God is sovereign. God is holy. Leave it to his wrath. Those who shed the blood of the martyrs, even though it looks as if they have won, David knew, we know, that God is holy and that God does not delight in the wicked and that those things will be made right either at the day of judgment or on the cross of Christ. John Piper says this, quote, In many cases, real wrongs have been done to us. Therefore, it is not entirely wrong to feel that justice should be done. You're made in the image of God. When you are truly sinned against, it's not inherently sinful to say, this is not right. What's wrong is to feel that we must make it happen and that we may feel bitter until it does. That would be a deadly mistake. So once that reality sets in on us and we say God is sovereign, he's in charge of all, he sees all these things, he's holy, he'll make it right, I can give it to him, I can hand it over to his nail-pierced hands and say, you'll make it right. Either in this life, you're going to save them, and Jesus really pays for that sin, or they'll be dealt with at the day of judgment, so I give them to you. Leave it to the wrath of God. Then we can pray, verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Is there a place for that kind of praying in the life of a Christian? That's a huge topic with a bunch of theological nerds in seminaries. Is how do you preach imprecatory psalms? Beloved, if you front load your prayers... 
by recognizing God's sovereignty, recognizing his holiness, and you come humbly to your father, you can say in verse 10, God, make them bear their guilt. Bring justice. This is wrong. should pray something like that every time we see injustice in the world. But to not do it with a high hand or a haughty spirit. We recognize God's sovereignty. We recognize God's holiness as we learn to lament the effects of sin. And thirdly, we recognize his grace. We must recognize his grace. Verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Full stop. (laughs) As I was reading this psalm, it dawned on me. And right there at verse 7, I just went, wait, hold on, stop. Where do you get off, David? Where do you get off talking like this? Go back to verses 4 through 6. Just follow the line of thinking. David says, for you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Destroy those who speak lies. The Lord hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And everything in me wanted to say, David, that's you. You're a liar and a blasphemer and a deceiver and an adulterer and a murderer. What are you talking about? How can you pray in verse 7, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will be in your house? Maybe you feel that way. You said, yeah, I've, I've been sinned against, but... I've done a lot of the same things. <laughs> How can I pray like this? It's all baked into that phrase, steadfast love. It is all because of the steadfast love of God, his hased, his grace, his undeserved grace. The same David, yes, who did all those horrible things, That maybe, maybe, we don't know, caused Bathsheba to pray like this and say, God, things are kind of a mess right now. Maybe Bathsheba's dad praying a Psalm 5 kind of prayer. How can David pray this way? Because David is the same guy, yes, who had done horrible things. And some of the things he did, we've done. But David, David knew in Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is covered. David is the same guy in Psalm 51 that says, I would give a sacrifice, but that's not what you want. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So cleanse me, wash me. David could pray this way because David knew, I've been forgiven by grace. Yes, I've done many of the same things. But by God's grace, I can say in verse 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. Did David, did David really think, I can pray this prayer call down imprecations on my enemies because I'm inherently moral. 
I'm righteous. David knew the gospel. He just didn't know the name of Jesus. David knew, I can pray this prayer because this sinner, this adulterer, this murderer, though no better than my offender, has tasted the abundance of grace and steadfast love and the imputation of righteousness from God that I don't deserve. You know, it's interesting how the gospel tunes our groaning. You go back before God saved me, before I understood the steadfast love of God, my groaning was in a minor key. I could hold a grudge. I could be self-righteous. I could think of some really wicked things that I hope would happen to my offenders. And I dare say that without the grace of God, if my anger would have been given full vent, I could pull a pistol on somebody. It maybe would have, if not by the grace of God. My groaning was in a minor key. But when God came and said, I mean, not said, through his word, said, you are a sinner deserving of my wrath. And I said, you're right. And he said, but my son has paid your debt. You're mine. You know when you transpose a song from a minor key to a major key? You know. When you taste grace, your groaning transposes from a minor key to a major key. To where now I still groan, I still feel the effects of living life in a fallen world, being sinned against. Because I'm aware of my own sin. Aware of the grace of God. Aware of his sovereignty. Aware of his holiness. I still groan, but it sounds like this. You get up in the morning before the kids get up, because that's the only time you can pray. Read your Bible. Especially when you have a two-year-old that gets up at 6.15 every day. So this prayer says, in the morning I pray, yup. And you pray and say, God, I am so mad. The Psalms read like that, right? I mean, I hope your prayer life isn't overly pious, because God, he can smell a fake. Read the Psalms. How do they pray? God, where are you? Where's your face? There's a time for that. There's a time to get up in the morning and say, God, what is going on? This hurts. That hurt 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And they're strutting around like that rooster that Brother Dave talked about. They're just flaunting their arrogance, God. It's like Asaph in Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? But now my groaning says, but God, only by your grace do I not do the same thing. And in times past, either in real life or in my mind, I've done worse. God, I pray, would you please, please save my enemy. Please awaken them. That I might call them a brother or a sister. Please take the offense that they've done and put it on Jesus. And if you don't, I step away in reverence and entrust them to a holy God that will deal with them rightly on the day of judgment. 
In Jesus' name, amen. And you grab your keys and you go to work. Beloved, the concept of theodicy, giving a justification for the goodness of God in the face of evil, it is important in the Christian life. We need to think about how to respond to the problem of evil for the sake of those who ask us for a reason, but also for our own sakes. But sometimes, sometimes we don't have an explicit answer for the pain. Notice that David prays that God would do these things to his enemies, but what does he do? He leaves it in God's hands for how it's executed. Right? I don't see David doing the Jonah thing where he says it, then he steps back and waits for Nineveh to burn. You know, David says, amen, and he goes. He goes about his business. He says, Lord, I, I give it to you. Amen. Done. You do with it what you will. Beloved, in that case, when, when you've got to just say amen and move on, and you don't know how God's going to deal with this, you don't know what's going on, I quote Charles Spurgeon, because if you ever don't know what to say, just quote Spurgeon. He said, when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. Because we know he is sovereign, he is holy, and he is gracious. So, very quickly, 90 seconds to apply the text. You ready? If I were to sit down with you one-on-one, you share your story, I take you to Psalm 5 and say, what you've experienced is really hurtful, really painful. Here's how we're going to apply this text. Three things. Number one, in light of Psalm 5, I want you to recognize that suffering is real and it hurts. What are you talking about? Sometimes we get this whole idea that if my theology is lofty enough, I'll become a functional stoic. I'll attain some level of ataraxia and imperturbability where I just don't feel anything. You know, I just get stoic and that's the Christian life. Baloney. Read the Psalms. See your Lord and Savior in the garden sweating drops of blood saying, Abba. If it be possible, you're not a stoic, beloved, and it's not faithless and it's not sinful to go to your father and say, this hurts like crazy. Father, help me. That is not a faithless prayer. Suffering is real. Rape, abuse, insult, injustice, murder, slander, and a million other pains will be vindicated, but it is okay to pray and say, God, ow. Number two, we can't love what we don't know. What I see from this text is if you want to learn to lament biblically, you need to know and relish the attributes of God. You need to know theology so that when the waves and the winds press you, you don't fall over. David knew and had the wherewithal to get up in the morning and say, you are Lord, God, King, Sovereign, Omnipotent, Immutable, Righteous, Wrathful, Jealous. You are all of those things, and I trust you more than I trust myself. Suffering is real. You can't love what you don't know. And finally, the gospel tunes are groaning. We don't pray the psalms of imprecation with any amount of arrogance, any, any amount of haughtiness, as if we're the judge, jury, and executioner. No, 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 no. David prayed boldly, but with a stark awareness of his own sin. But he also knew because of the steadfast love of God, he indeed could come to him and pour out his heart. 
And as I close, if you are here without Christ, if you are here saying, I, I don't know that I'm a Christian, or maybe you're saying, I know I'm not a Christian, maybe the problem of evil is the reason you're not a Christian. I can't trust a good God in light of all these things. To you, I say humbly, with an awareness of my own sin against a holy God and my need of grace in Christ. Verse 10 is your condition today. You bear your own guilt. And because of the abundance of your transgressions, you will be cast out because you have rebelled against a holy God. That is the state of everyone apart from Christ. But that steadfast love, that mercy, and that grace, and that pardon is available to you because God, the sovereign creator, sent his son who lived the perfect life that you can't and died the death that you deserve and bore the wrath of God against you so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That's for you. You think, but you don't know what I've done. I'm, I'm not just the offended party. I have hurt so many people. The blood of Christ can cover it to the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And he beckons you to come. You, the hurt, and you, the offender, come. When God's enemies threaten God's people, God's people trust God's character. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for the Psalms of imprecation. We don't always know what to do with them. And Lord, in the hands of a haughty or self-righteous spirit, they can be like a loaded gun. But God, in the hands of a contrite, humble, self-aware person who knows their own sin and their need of grace and the character of the God to whom we pray, God, these psalms can be a medicine and a balm to your people who suffer in a fallen world. God, would you pour out the balm, the medicine of the gospel upon this flock? Would you heal them for things that happened yesterday? Heal them for things that happened 20, 30 years ago. Knowing that those who sin against us will either be dealt with on the day of judgment, but we prefer, God, that they be dealt with graciously by having Christ take their punishment. And in either case, we release them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.